Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Um, I, I did. Yeah, I was I was really entirely um, self-taught. And and I think, you know, the the simplest advice I can give to anybody is, you know, you got to work hard. You, you really have to put in the time and the hours that it takes to learn something. The Akyong Podcast. Akyong Podcast. India's first and very own architecture podcast, where you'll hear the insights, experiences, and journeys from India's leading architects. No matter what your skill level is, together, we'll build on our knowledge and share architecture's greatest stories ever told. Now, here's your host, Manish Paul Simon. Hey guys, welcome back to yet another episode of the Akyan Podcast. This is from an architect to a full stack developer with Peter Mitev. And what's a full stack developer? A full stack developer is someone who knows the back end as well as the front end of designing and developing a website. So he essentially knows all the coding languages required to build a website. Now, don't get me wrong. We're not going to be talking about designing a website in this episode. Rather, we're going to be talking about how Peter started off as an architect, worked for the biggest firms in the world, and inevitably got into computational design, and now explores interfaces and frameworks for web development as a global leader of design computation at NPBJ. Peter's had quite a journey in the field of architecture and computational design, and you'll get to know more in this episode. For more on the episode and also podcast show notes and links, head to arkyan.com slash 31. Before we head to the episode, please do follow us on Instagram. We go by the handle of Akyan and also support us on Patreon. We'll be releasing two new courses this week on our Patreon channel and you'll get free access if you support us on Patreon. With that said, this is From an Architect to a Full Stack Developer with Peter Mitev. We mix things up a bit this time. He starts off by sharing what exactly he does at NBBJ and what a global leader in computational design is. Let's go. Yeah, um, so we uh, are under the, the group that I lead is, is the design computation team. Um, and we're under a, an even bigger group um, that's part of NBBJ. It's called NBBJ Digital. Um, and in that group, you really have a number of different teams uh, which leverage technology in different ways to, to try and empower uh, our core business, which is, of course, uh, building design and architecture. So um, design computation is one of those branches. And the way that we like to do it is we like to have um, at least one uh uh, design computation leader per studio. Uh, in some cases, that's uh, obviously more than one, especially in our larger studios like uh, in Seattle, um, more than one. And we have not only studio leaders, but also project leaders. And um, when we kind of add all, all those people uh, across our many different locations and studios, um, those are the people in the design computation team. Um, and what I do is I lead the design computation team um, uh, across a number of projects and initiatives. 
and just kind of try and make sure that we're working towards the same strategic and firm-wide goals that the rest of uh, the teams are as well. Uh, but really, our main goal is to leverage existing and emerging technologies uh, in ways that they can empower uh, building design, architecture, construction, all of that, um, which means a lot of different things at a lot of different scales. But uh, we try to be very flexible. We try to be fluid um, and we try to be very much embedded in the work. So our, our uh, computational designers uh, are really spending most of their time working directly on projects and bringing in some of these technologies at the at the grassroots level. And then in addition to that, we have some kind of higher level firm wide initiatives. And that's where the, the more development focus is. Um, but, yeah, I think that's uh, in general, that's how we're how we're structured. Awesome. Sounds like uh, you guys are at the forefront of architectural, I would say, exploration. Would you like relate to that? Yeah, I would. I would. Um, we always love to, um, um, you know, and advertise the fact that we were named uh, the most innovative uh, architecture firm back in 2018 nice. um, by Fast Company, I believe it was. And that's certainly an exciting thing, but it's it's also not something that is, is static. Um, it's something that you have to go out and improve year after year. So um, I, I would agree with it, but I also think that, you know, we need to be we need to be uh, making sure we're at the forefront every year, every month and every day in order to be able to, you know, fully, fully embrace that title. Awesome. So could you tell us the different projects that you work on? So my understanding would be if I'm not really into computational design, is that you're directly working on actual projects or is it that you're working on maybe software projects? Yeah, I'd say it's a, I'd say it's a mixture of both. Okay. Um, I think primarily, uh, primarily where, you know, the, the bulk of design computation work happens is directly in the project related to, related to the project. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, if it's something like, you know, we think about the Amazon spheres spheres is a really good example. We did a uh, facade rationalization exercise for that in order to make, um, that organic facade, uh, buildable. But that's a design problem that's very, very specific to that to that project. Mm -hmm. And I'd say that that's the that's the that's where the majority of our of our team is spending their time on. And then in addition to that, we have these um, initiatives which are more in the realm of of uh, software projects, which uh, can be used by designers or can be used by you know other supporting entities in the firm. Um, and in that respect, our big focus recently has been. Um, building performance and human performance. Mm -hmm. So we have a kind of a long lasting partnership with with some researchers across the world. Um, the one that we've been working the most with uh, is John Medina, and he is uh, at the University of Washington. I believe he's a molecular neuroscientist. So we've been working with him to get research about how um, you know, spatial elements, spatial moves that come out of design and space planning um, can affect humans and human performance. And his research is really tied around the central concept of stress. And, and he's he's uh, articulated that that is a huge driver of, of human performance in space. So our current initiatives are really focused about taking pieces of his research and creating them into into analytical tools, which we can use on on our designs uh, to, to ideally have a, a positive impact. Uh, impact on the on our clients and and the inhabitants of their spaces, which which is very critical in every aspect. Um, but for us, it's extra critical because we do a lot of work in healthcare, and 
you know, the performance of nurses and doctors is, is absolutely of, of chief importance when, when they're dealing with human lives. So that's that's been where our, our initiatives are focused at, I think, primarily. And we've also started to shift towards uh, build, building performance as well. We mm-hmm. created a design performance group and, and we're working on a number of initiatives for them to kind of start building the culture around uh, yeah, design, design performance. So in MBBGA, it's since you are a subgroup of the main uh, digital group, you guys uh, always have this constant maybe uh, collaboration with other teams working towards a, maybe a software which would help in building up a project or is it just that you guys focus only on the software? Like you spoke about building efficiency, right? Yeah, um, we we try to be as, as, as integrated as possible. Yeah. But- that I've learned um, in my career. And I think one thing that we've observed here is that if you try, if you start separating those different pieces, um, it's not as effective. You know, if we were to all kind of stay siloed or, or even worse, if we were to contract some of this work out, I think we lose on a lot of expertise and knowledge that's very specific to our, our work and our culture. So we try to work together um, as much as possible. Something like a uh, development effort. We, we have user group meetings. We have stakeholder meetings. Um, when we design the software, we're, we're always doing it with, um, um, you know, all the relevant stakeholders in the room. So even if it's a, even if it's slightly a technical discussion, we, we do our best to, to make sure that everybody can have a voice and everybody can participate in the process. Because at the end of the day, if we, if we deliver a solution that isn't used or isn't effective, um, it, it's just a loss of value. It's a loss of value and it's a loss of time. And it's, it's just not something that we want to do. So yeah, we try to open the, the process as much as we can. And it, it's a changing thing. It's an ever changing thing. Sometimes we think we did it right. And, and then we learned that there were ways that we could have done it better, include more people, include more voices, um, which makes it tougher, but it, it does lead to a better product. So that's something that we that we, we try to do as much as we can. Cool. So sounds like you guys are the cool guys in the office, right? Compared to... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's what we tell ourselves, but I don't know if everybody agrees. <laughs> yeah, compared to like the BIM team, there's also a BIM team, right? And MBVJ? Yeah. Yeah, there's a... The BIM team is actually a lot larger. I mean, and, and that makes sense though, because BIM is... I mean, in, in this year, in this day and age, BIM is absolutely central to all... I'd, I'd say every single project that we do. Um, and clients are getting more BIM savvy and BIM competent and, and partners are as well. Engineers, construction companies, they're um, really starting to use the technology to its you know capacity. Um, so the BIM team is a lot larger. But yes, that's a, that's also another good example of, of a team that we very closely collaborate with. Um, we, we try to use the same channels of communication. We try to share ideas and problems because. Um, the BIM team is also very much close to our core business or our design and, and more on the delivery side, I'd say a little mm-hmm. bit, but nevertheless, there's, there's a lot of, of opportunities there that we can, um, address to make ourselves more efficient, more effective. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we, we really rely on, on that team. And I'm, I'm actually, uh, partially on, on the BIM team as well. I, I, I wear a bunch of different hats. Nice. Um, so, so we, we share, we share that need and we share those resources and, and yeah. Awesome. Your team would be like the R&D of the company. And in a way, uh, you sort of increase the efficiency and the time frame of making a project uh, reduces as in when you grow, right? 
Yeah, I I would agree. Yes, again with a little bit of asterisk. The you know we we do a fair bit of um, exploration, which might be in the realm of R and D. But I think we 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 maintain a focus on how we do it and why mm-hmm. we do it. Like you know. Yes, yes, there is research that has to happen, but um, we always try to tie it to a project need and a project question. You know, we we try not to do explorations just for the sake of explorations. We always want to make sure we're answering a question mm-hmm. um, that has the potential to, to to deliver business value and project value to to the things that we do. Um, but yeah, um, uh, I'd say I'd say given that once we have a direction and, and a specific thing that we're trying to solve, we. We um we we make sure we have the right opportunity, the right resources, and we we go about exploring it. Awesome. You know, I would like to know how you ended up where you are right now. So, could you take us through your uh, career and how you got into architecture, and then inevitably become a computational designer and now a global leader? Yeah, uh, oof, it's a it's a long one. I'll, I'll try and give you the the abbreviated version, and then you can you can see if there's any specifics we want to dive into. Um, so I, uh, before I even got into college, I, I, I didn't really have a specific, uh, I didn't have this specific vision of, of architecture or anything else in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually, uh, wanted to be an artist. I was, um, pretty, pretty skilled with, you know, drawing, painting and, and other kind of, I was doing, uh, digital art back then. And, uh, but my parents were both engineers, so that was not something that they were very much interested in, you know, they uh, they, they wanted me to, um, you know, have, have a sustainable kind of career path. Um, and I think we could all, we could all relate to that. Um, especially, uh, from someone that's coming from an engineering background, but, um, I found this, you know, happy medium as it seemed, which was architecture, right? Which is this very interesting intersection of, of science and art. Mm. Um, and I thought, Hey, why not? The, the work looks great. The, um, uh, the, you know, everything that, that, that I, I was seeing around the time, whether it's professional work or student work, academic work was exciting. Um, that was what I started doing in college. Um, and I, I did my bachelor's and master's degree in architecture at the University of Cincinnati. Um, and the good thing about that program was that um, we would be alternating internship semesters and um, pro- professional practice semesters. So we would you know, go to school for one semester and then go work at a firm for another semester. Mm-hmm. And I got to um, really work around the country and around the world. Nice. Um, and exposed me, exposed me to a lot of different parts of the practice. Um, I was kind of really all over the place. I worked on a number of different, you know, tasks and teams and studios. So it was, it was, it was very much an eye-opening thing. So I graduated, and when I did, I was lucky enough. When I did graduate, lucky enough to uh, make the team at uh, Kieran Timberlake. Kieran Timberlake, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I. Uh, started here in Timberlake around uh, that time, which which was a, a great studio, studio, great architecture firm, long history, history and, and culture of design and design, I think. Um, and I started as an architect originally. It was uh, on a project there that working on a project there that really started pushing me towards this other side and more in the technology realm of things. Mm-hmm. Um, we were doing some work for the University of Washington uh, student housing, and I was working on a particular building and really trying to get it um, as tall as the client wanted because they wanted to fit a number of, you know, a certain number of students had, had to be able to 
able to fit inside this building. Right. And I was I was running into an issue because it was uh, very much based on the local code. Um, basically, the the level of topography around the how high you can make the building. So at one point I kind of, you know, we, we went back and forth with the city on this for weeks, months, it seemed like. And at one point um, I looked at my timesheet and I, I realized that I've spent, you know, something like a month on figuring out this problem, which still wasn't figured out mm-hmm. because the city is, is not letting us, you know, get to this height. Um, and that was when I started uh, trying to pick up some of these computational tools and see if there was a, a mathematical way to to automate the rationalization of, of the problem. And I think that was kind of the, the start, really. And after that, I, I did figure figure out some solutions, and it, it really opened my eyes to this to this other way of doing things. And I slow, slowly started implementing, you know, things like automation, things like analysis, just to help me get my uh, work done a little bit more effectively. And it wasn't long after that that I I moved from the the proper architecture side of mm-hmm. Kieran Timberlake to the research group. Um, we, we actually started the design computation core core within the research group in Kieran Timberlake with, um, Christopher Connick, who's currently the, the director of design computation over there. So, um, that was my entry into that world. And I think, uh, after some time there, that was when I, I then made the, um, transition to NBBJ had a, had an opportunity to be closer to family and, um, do some other things at a little bit of a bigger scale. Um, started here uh, initially as a uh, studio uh, BIM and computation lead, and um, kind of shortly shortly on, I took the firm wide role of of leadership of the design computation team, and and um, that's kind of where where I am now. I'm I'm working with our uh, director of design innovation and our uh, chief technology officer. Um, working with those two to uh, figure out the correct trajectory for the firm in terms of digital strategy and and, and implement it throughout the team. Awesome. Awesome. I would like to ask you, uh, what were the first tools that led you to the path of computation? Let me guess, uh, was it Grasshopper? Yeah, um, that's a good guess. Yes. And that was one of the two. It was Grasshopper and Dynamo really got me started. Um, the project I was referring to in the University of Washington was uh, obviously it was it was delivered in, in Revit. And at the time I was using Dynamo to uh, automate that specific problem of, of the average grade plane. Um, and, uh, you know, parallel to that, we were doing a lot of design studies in Rhino. And obviously Grasshopper is is there, which which opened my eyes to to that tool. And, you know, it wasn't very long after that that I started uh, jumping into Python, I think was my my very first kind of textual coding nice. language. Um, it's it's supported in, in Grasshopper. It's supported in Dynamo. So it was kind of a very, very natural evolution for me to go to visual to textual in that environment. Nice. And now you're into JavaScript and also creating interfaces, right? So could you tell us more about that? Yeah, um, I think with um, at one point, the, you know, the the ceiling, which which you reach with those um, with kind of visual programming, I Mm -hmm. think, made itself apparent. Um, you can do some absolutely phenomenal and effective things. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not trying to put down visual programming, but, um, when I started thinking about the scale of where I was of, you know, NDBJ, we have a lot of people. We, we have, I think 800, 900, and we're constantly growing. Um, and I really needed something that can, that can support that scale and, and something that everyone can relate to and use without, you know, needing this bespoke computational knowledge. So, um, 
the first thing that I got into was uh, WPF on uh, Windows, and that was because I was doing uh, Revit add-ins. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it wasn't long after that that I kind of, I mean, I, I see the same trend that everybody else sees in terms of moving to the web. Um, if you look at major tech companies, uh, Amazon, Microsoft, uh, all of them, they, they have moved and started to move a lot of their services to the web. Autodesk is no different. You know, we have mm-hmm. Forge, we have BIM 360. These are all web-based tools. And the reason is accessibility. Um, they can really ensure that all of their clients have as much access as they can to the tools that they create. And it's no different for us. I, I want everybody to have access to the things that we build. So, um, we started looking at web as an architecture, which then of course pushed us into, uh, frameworks for, for web development. Um, uh, JavaScript is obviously the, the underlying uh, language that we use, uh, CSS, HTML also of course, critical in building up those interfaces. Um, but we adopted the, uh, the Vue.js framework, um, just to, to, on a more technical side, I guess, um, because of its, its speed and, and ease of use for developers and, that's kind of our technical side of things. But on the less technical side, we also started working with uh, UI UX designers, Mm -hmm. uh, graphics people um, to really try and uh, tailor these experiences and be very deliberate and intentional about the things that we create. Um, And that has been, I mean, truly, truly a positive experience. And I, I recommend Uh, I recommend something like that to to everyone, really, because um, you can have the logic in your mind. You can have the the function and you can be certain of what you need to do in order to create value. But there's always this barrier when you present people with it um, because they don't communicate and interact with things in the same way that you do. That's just, you know, it's not guaranteed at all. And um, it it really makes a difference when you start thinking about how people are going to engage with this thing, how they're going to use it and how you can improve that. So. We've been uh, continuing to strengthen that relationship and we're continuing to to do that on, on new initiatives and current projects. And uh, it, it's not easy sometimes. Honestly, you know, you you um, have to implement a, a somewhat specific vision. But I think if it, if it ensures that more people see and use what you've created, then it's then it's all worth it. Right. And uh, what are the projects which uh, you, you're talking about, like which is already realized or uh, come out? Yeah. Um, so we, we haven't unfortunately released anything, uh, publicly yet publicly right, right. about the work that I'm talking about. Um, I'm hoping that, um, we will have some, some materials to, to market and share publicly, probably midway, uh, through this year. Um, it, it's, it's a suite of tools that we're, we're, um, building related to the analysis of, of human and building performance, kind of like I alluded to earlier. Um, and for the time being, they're they're internal only, um, as has been our, our history in the past of, of doing things specific to our designs. But um, there is kind of an ongoing discussion that we we always have. And we ask the question of, you know, does it make sense to to share this uh, uh, publicly in terms of not just not just seeing what it is, but even being able to use it. So um, that's something that we might review in the future. And, and that'll really be up to our firm leadership to see if, if, if it aligns with our goals to, to be creating things for, for external usage. But for now, at the very least, we'll hopefully be able to release some, some visuals um, closer to, to midway this year. Awesome. All right. Uh, from an hiring perspective, right? Uh, you're an architect and then you transitioned into coding. Uh, do you feel mm-hmm. that there are fir- the firms these days are looking out for more architects with a good coding background rather than just normal architects? 
I, I think the, uh, the, the demand for that position has definitely increased. I mean, without a doubt. Um, and, and it's increased a lot in a very short amount of time, I have to say. And I, you know, I don't know that it necessarily matters that it's specific, uh, you know, to coding or, or, or visual programming, but I think it is specific to being able to wield technology a lot more fluidly and fluently. Um, and you know, this, this title or this role of computational designer or computational specialist means a, a lot of different things to a lot of different people and a lot of different firms, which is perfectly fine. But, but I think it's, it's also illustrative of the fact that we all use very different tools and technologies to, to get our work done, um, which is exciting. And, and it means that we have a, a great platform and a great toolkit to be able to, to use it. But, um, yeah, no, I, I think demand has been growing. Absolutely. I, I see postings um, uh, for, for that specific role, the design computation specialist or leader. And I mean, I think to five, five years ago or three years ago, even four years ago, and that wasn't so common. You know, you would see the biggest companies maybe are asking for that, maybe NBBJ and maybe, you know, Woods Baggett or we, we work. Um, but it, it wasn't the majority of them. And I think you're seeing more and more of it now. And I think mm-hmm. we'll continue, continue to see more and more of it as this becomes itself an effective method of, of thinking about the, the work. Awesome. You picked up on all these skills in a short period of time, right? So, but how did you make it happen? And like, what advice would you give to someone who really has no clue about competition, but really wants to get into it? Yeah. Um, I, I did. Yeah, I was, I was really entirely, um, self-taught and, and I think, you know, the, the simplest advice I can give to anybody is, you know, you got to work hard. You, you really have to put in the time and the hours that it takes to learn something. Um, and what I did, uh, is, is, you know, I had, I, I obviously still had to get the same work work that I was, was getting done normally. Right. I mean, I, I couldn't just, uh, forego my, all my responsibilities, but, um, my strategy was to try and do that same work a different way. So I would, um, you know, you know, approach a problem and I would say, okay, well, I'm going to try and solve this using a new tool or technology, maybe something that I saw online or something that I was in. I was interested in and I would spend my time uh, trying to do it this new way, which obviously takes more time and it's risky. It's risky because if I don't get this new method to work, then I have to not only, you know, not only devote the time that I've devoted to exploring it, but then I have to spend an extra amount of time and do it the old fashioned way or, or, you know, whatever way I was doing it before. Um, And, you know, I'm not going to lie that results in some long nights and it results in some long weekends. Um, there, there's no way around it, but at a certain point you start building experience, you start building knowledge and those kinds of, um, I, I don't want to call them failures, but those kinds of instances where you have to spend double the time, they grow less and less and less and less. And at one point you are, uh, completely adept and experienced enough to look at a problem and say, okay, this is the technology for this problem. This is how it wants to be done. And I know that I can do it this way. And there's a much smaller percent risk that you're going to have to, you know, blow up all the work because it, it didn't, it didn't pan out like you thought and, and do it the right or do it the old way. Um, so, I mean, yeah, that's, that's definitely one way. And then the other thing that I have to mention is, you know, seek out resources and people. The great thing about the time that we live in now is that there are so many resources online on exactly. YouTube, uh, Udemy, LinkedIn Learning. There's all these e-learning platforms. 
Um, and there's social media as well, where people like uh, myself, like other open source contributors, like, you know, Andrew Human, um, for example, he Brian Ringley as well, right? He worked for NBBJ. Okay. Unfortunately, he's currently at Hypar. Okay. Um, but he, he's brilliant. And there's a lot of other people uh, that are brilliant that are very easy to, to reach out to on, on social media, whether it's LinkedIn or something else, Twitter. Um, and just ask them a question, you know, if, if they're the creator of the tool that you're interested in, just ask them a question um, and and maybe they, they might be able to point you to the right path. So the good thing is that we're all very connected and there's a lot of resources, but it still takes time and somebody needs to say, OK, I'm going to devote this time and I'm just going to do it. Awesome. All right. Um, I want to talk about I don't know if it's a, still a buzzword in architecture, but. How much of machine learning and artificial intelligence is being implemented in architecture or maybe projects? Yeah, I'd say, yeah, I, I think that's probably going to be a buzzword for a while, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, I, I'm going to be, I'm going to be pretty brutally honest. I don't think uh, there is really any um, significant application. I've seen a lot of research projects. I've done some research projects myself, mm. um, but if you were to ask me what solutions are using machine learning or AI to deliver business value to architecture and construction, I would say there is almost none. Mm. Um, and I would say the ones that are there are very much on the construction side. So a couple of examples is um, the robotics uh, being developed by Boston Dynamics, mm. and uh, that's where Brian Ringley works. You know, those are used for a number of different things. They patrol a job site. They use computer vision to detect safety violations. Um, you know, they look out for people that may be injured or hurt and can't communicate. So those are very tangible problems, uh, but they are also very much in the construction industry. And we should also keep in mind that the construction industry has a much, much bigger budget than architecture and design. So it makes sense. You know, that's mm -hmm. not something that's out of the ordinary. Um, but I think when you bring it back to architecture and design, I really think these solutions are minimal, bar none. I, I really can't think of um, of anything. I mean, I've again, I've seen some demos. I've seen research projects um, of generative design using, you know, maybe it was trained using an adversarial generative network or something like that. But um, I, I don't see the impact on business value. And because I don't see the impact on business value quite yet, then I can't say that it's, it's very common. Um, is it because of I've, a lack of data? I think that's part of it. I mean, part of it is a lack of data, but the other part of it is that this is very domain specific ex that requires, uh, experts to implement. Um, and I'll, I'll cite Thornton Tomasetti. They've, they've begun things to do what I would call the correct way meaning that they had a series of problems that they thought could be solved by machine learning. And they hired a machine learning expert uh, in order to guide them, you know, rather than kind of doing this, this research unguided exploration, they hired an expert and they're, they're leveraging him to help them find the technical solution to their problem and implement it the right way. Um, and I think that's critical. I think that's absolutely critical. And I think without those kinds of experts that we, we won't really get, get too far. Nice. And uh, have you started taking courses on AI and machine learning? You know, I've, I, I did some back in the day. Um, I, my particular um, area of interest was natural language processing. I've done some, and then I've always also, um, uh, just, just in personal projects. Cause I, I personally like to learn by, by exploration. Mm. Um, so I have, you know, but 
uh, again, um, most of it has been has been research projects, and I, I haven't really found anything compelling enough uh, to implement in terms of a, a business ready solution, uh, just due to the cost and the time that that it takes. And um, you know, if an opportunity opportunity were to come up, I think I think at least I'm I'm ready in terms of knowing what tools and technologies we can leverage. But currently, um, no, I haven't implemented any of my um, projects in, in in business ready solutions. All right. I'd like to just ask you, like maybe in 10 years from now, do you feel that a lot of architects are going to be replaced by algorithms and uh, maybe even probably even robots? <laughs> yeah, um, I would say absolutely not. You know, okay. and I, I know that's a popular question to ask. Um, but I, I think, you know, first, first, it's it's just even worth looking back throughout history. I mean, just just look at the past 2000 years. And I think you'll find a lot of examples where people ask themselves, oh, okay, is, is this new technology going to replace these people? Is the steam engine going to replace people? Is the printing press going to replace people? And undoubtedly, I think it displaces people temporarily, but I don't think it replaces, it, it can't really replace anybody because when you, when you look at how society evolves uh, past those, those technical innovations, uh, people always find somewhere else to go. You know, when one question gets solved, when one problem gets solved, it just means that we move on to another one. Absolutely. Um, and when I, when I look at something like architecture and design, uh, you know, the problems that we might be able to solve with, with algorithms and with AI are, let's call it a handful, but there are so many other problems that then we, we are free to think about as, as humans and as designers. And I'm sure that, you know, we, we don't even see the full breadth of them now. Um, but we will, I think we will. And the tasks that we will uh, be able to automate or, or get done with machine learning and AI are probably not the tasks that we really want to spend time doing anyway. So in that sense, I'm, <clears throat> looking forward to to improving the technology so that we can we can really start taking more time for the tasks that we want to do um and i think as buildings have gotten bigger as projects and complexity has gotten um a lot bigger it also means that our cognitive load has increased increased and increased and if i look at you know a day-to-day -day of a project architect or project manager and compare it to the same day-to-day -day life five or ten years ago I would tell you that those people are a lot more burdened by a lot more responsibility these mm. days. And I think it really is worth thinking about what part of that workflow can we alleviate for them so that they can really spend more time on those things that are very specific to human creativity uh, that, that really can't be replaced. All right. Let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, you know, President Trump is not a big fan of climate change, but uh, <laughs> climate change is real. And there's, you know, uh, things are going to change drastically if you don't go under the, I think it's below two degrees, right? And like by 2050, I'm not right, sure. Right, right. The AC is obviously a big contributor towards greenhouse gases. And how does, you know, implementation of technology and BIM at a larger scale uh, improve efficiency and towards the end become more sustainable? Yeah, that's a really good question, because like you said, uh, climate change is, is very much real and there's there's really no no ignoring it or denying it. That's just really not an option. Um, I, I think we do as an industry have a responsibility to think about that question. Um, the I think the largest uh, not the largest responsibility, but the largest scope for being able to control um, that kind of uh, thing is, I think, really on the construction side and, and on the client side, mm -hmm. um, because, you know, the client is the one that that has the funding. Right. And a lot of times their needs and their demands are uh, 
just what drives the the majority of the direction, which is understandable. They're the client, but um, it's also then up to the design and design and construction team to work with them and help them understand these questions and issues, which they may or may not. Um, that's one part of it. And then the other part is the actual construction side. So, I mean, I, I don't know the specific statistic off the top of my head, but the construction industry is uh, single-handedly responsible for a ton of, of energy output and, and pollution just because of the nature of construction. I mean, it, it is a energy intensive process, right? The materials are created, they're driven to the site, they're right. erected. A lot of times there's construction waste. Um, and I, I wish I had that number off the top of my head as well, but construction waste, just simply throwing out garbage, which we don't end up using on the site is a huge number. Hmm. And, and I think that that is something that only they can address because, you know, as we all know, being architects, when you're on the construction site, there's only one person in charge. It's the contractor. It's the construction company. We don't get to say anything uh, for the most part, right? We, we make reports and we make recommendations, but we don't have the scope or agency to control that. So, um, it, you know, what we do have is the scope and agency to, to talk as a team with the client, with the contractor and, and make sure that we're doing things the right way. Um, so like I said, internally, we, we, we don't have a, a long history of doing that kind of work, but we're, we're making sure to change that. We started our design performance group. Um, we are capturing sustainability metrics for all projects going mm -hmm. forward. Um, and we are going to start the long, long journey of, of being, being proactive and responsible about this kind of information and, and leveraging things like uh, our BIM models, uh, leveraging things like, you know, analytical tools uh, to do takeoffs and, uh, you know, actually get the information on life cycle analysis, carbon, embodied carbon, embodied energy, all of that information to be able to track how we're trending as a firm and or as a studio. So those tools will most definitely uh, be a part of that process because it, it's not something we can do manually, but it is something that we need to do. And it's also not something that somebody is going to pay us to do. Uh, unfortunately, here is money for 80 hours of doing life cycle analysis for the most part, right? That's something that we might need to carve out ourselves from our own time, from our own kind of. So we believe that it will positively impact the business and uh, the industry. So, um, yeah, we just have to dig in and then uh, keep, keep, keep pounding the pavement. All right. And you're also into giving. You're a big part of the community in your space. I think you started a Dynamo user group and uh, you also give sp keynote speeches mm -hmm. and all that, right? So could you tell us the importance about spreading the word and making more people, you know, embrace technology? Yeah, I, I think it's a, I think it's a big, big focus of mine. And I think it's a, it's a valuable thing to do as well. Um, you know, when you, when you look at our, work in our industry, it's very much a collaborative thing. You know, when you think about what it takes to put a building on, on the planet, it, it takes a huge group. It takes architects, engineers, construction uh, professionals. It takes the client there. There's a huge team. It's not just one company. It's not one person or anything like that. And so what that means is that that the whole of that team has to be proficient and knowledgeable about these tools and techniques, because if it's one sided, um, it, it's really not going to have as much of an effect as it should. If I have a great idea, 
But if I can't convince uh, my partner in construction or my contractor to to work with me, then it stops with my scope of control, right? It mm. stops at design. Yeah. And if it stops at design, well, it might be implemented in construction, but it might not be. So, you know, a huge goal with these workshops and, and talks that I, I try and make time for is to just educate as many people as I can and, and give and create resources to, to help people on the same journey that, that, you know, I was on uh, some time ago, because one day we might be working on the same project or on the same team. And, you know, that shared knowledge might be the difference that makes the project better. It might be what lets us use a new tool that saves the client money or saves on greenhouse submissions and embodied carbon. So it's worth sharing that knowledge. And it's also worth realizing that the majority of uh, firms are, you know, not at the scale of revenue where they can very easily support these kinds of efforts. So people need a lot of support. They need those resources for e-learning, for inspiration and, and everything else in order to get started because, um, you know, they might very well be the pioneer in their company that starts the culture. But until that gets started, they, they need a little bit of, of help in terms of resources and time. Awesome. All right, Peter, what do you see coming in the near future? What do you think would be the biggest impact to the AEC industry and architecture in particular? Yeah, I, you know, there, there's a lot of things in terms of technology that, that we can talk about that would probably be a lot more exciting. And I'm a little bit of a curmudgeon in this sense, but, you know, I think one thing has to be addressed before we address everything else. And that is our delivery models. Hmm. Um, you know, if you look at our, our contracts, our standard contracts of the way that we do work, if you look at our business model, um, it's very archaic and it's really not taking advantage of these new tools and formats that we have. Um, and, you know, a very simple example that I'll, I'll give to illustrate this is look at the automotive industry. Look at the aviation industry. If if you showed them the way that we work and deliver buildings, you know, just a, a stapled series of paper, they would honestly laugh at us and, and they would be right to do so because they are really leveraging uh, digital technology uh, models, uh, big data. They're leveraging all of that to create a, a product which is holistically engineered and designed and um, is, is delivered and manufactured, you know, kind of in a direct vertical stack of all those things happening together, as opposed to our model where, you know, you're playing this game of telephone and you're playing the game with a series of paper drawings and, oh, well, it, it may or may not work out in the end. So I think we really, really need to focus on our business model and delivery model as a profession, as an industry, um, because tools and technologies will continue to grow and evolve. But I, I am currently not really convinced that we can make proper use of them because of, of the way that we're stuck working. Awesome. Yeah, it's surprising to hear that from you because uh, India is still at a stage where we not yet implemented BIM and we have a long way to go, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I feel that technology, yeah, yes, it will definitely help. And uh, we need more people like Elon Musk in the AEC industry. <laughs> we do, yeah. I mean, there's, but luckily, I mean, that there is a lot of, of activity in that space. I think startups, you know, you look at Hypar, you look at TestFit, there's there's people doing interesting work and they're they're asking interesting questions. And I think the industry is waking up to all of that. And hopefully, hopefully it will reach uh, business leaders uh, because we we have to we have to change the way that we work if we want to start making use of these things properly. All right. 
yeah i think we covered most of it but i would like to just come back to design again do you feel that the role of an architect essentially is for aesthetics and good design right do you feel that that is sort of compromised in a way oh i don't know you know i think i think i mean it's it's really hard i think to pin down what the role of an architect may or may not be and i think that's because it's probably different project to project hmm. and because it's changing day to day um you know, design is a huge part of it, I think, obviously. But when you when you start thinking about why, I mean, why is design a huge part of it? Like, what are the goals that you want to achieve? Maybe maybe you're trying to impact the community uh, at that scale. Maybe you're trying to impact your client in the scale of their business. Or maybe you're trying to impact a city, you know, uh, by, by the type of intervention that you're doing. And maybe your goals are social, maybe they're cultural, uh, who knows, they might be economic. The, the point is that that role plays, plays itself out very, very different, differently, I think, project to project. And I've seen, you know, just kind of as I'm turning my head right now and looking across our studio and seeing the different project managers and thinking what they're working on, you know, some of them have really taken the role of, of a negotiator. Hmm. Some are, have taken the role of a, a very proactive designer. And some have taken the role of a more of an analytical role. And, and it's because the clients are different, the goals are different, and they are, are taking on the chunk of work, which they believe will deliver the most positive impact to the community, the built environment and the client. And, and it's different. You know, I, I know that's kind of an umbrella statement, but it really is different. And I think um, good architects know when to be what and when, uh, you know, to focus on certain problems and certain goals. Yeah, definitely. It's become more dynamic. And uh, this reference to an idyllic impression of an architect where he sits in his main cabin and sketches away designs is slowly <laughs> fading away, right? I, I think so. Yeah. And I don't think that's a bad thing, though. I don't think it's a bad thing because it's a complicated job. It's a tough job. It's not easy uh, for anybody that, that thinks it is. And I know that movies and popular culture has made it, you know, look like this romantic, romantic thing, but you know, the reality is, is very different and, and people, people go through a lot of different things to deliver projects. So I, I think it's worth recognizing that. And I also think, uh, for young architects, it's worth knowing that there isn't, there isn't one model that you have to fit into and say, okay, well now I'm an architect, but if I do this, you know, if I don't wear a black t-shirt and, and glasses, then I'm not an architect. Or if I don't sit away sketching, I'm not, that's just not true. There's, there's so many different ways to, to work in the field and be effective. So yeah, I, I, and I, that's why I think it's a good thing. People, people should feel comfortable to do the role in ways that they find effective and valuable, but that might, might yeah, but that might not fit into the kind of cultural image or model of the role. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Peter, I think that was a pretty good session packed with a lot of useful information. My last question to you is, uh, I generally ask this to all my guests, what advice would you give to all uh, young students of architecture and architects just getting started? Oh yeah. Uh, good advice. Uh, or good question. <laughs> Let's see if I'll give good advice. That's, that's, uh, that's terrific. Um, I would say, I would say make connections. Um, you know, talk to people, whether it's in person or on social media, if you, if you know, if you don't have that direct connection, but find people that you, uh, think are interesting people that you might even aspire to be, you know, someone that inspires you or, um, is solving the kinds of questions that you want to work with, reach out, talk to them, ask for help, ask for guidance. And, 
and just try to be involved in the community and the work you you that really is is one of the best ways to um, learn a lot and to be the best at what you do. And and the other one that I'd add on top of that is um, this is probably a, a bit of a rarer one to hear. But focus focus on yourself as well, because mm-hmm. I remember school and I remember my first years as an architect and and uh, I remember spending a lot of hours, a lot of time, absolutely just killing myself for for the outcome. And I think it's worth just keeping in mind that you need to take care of yourself. You need to make time for yourself because this profession and life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. If if you are dedicated and you are uh, learning and you're doing things, you will get to where you need to get. I promise you. But, you know, be conscious of the time that you're spending. Don't don't destroy your physical and mental health. And um, if you find that that is a challenge, then, again, find mentors in your company or outside of your company and have them, you know, help you think through the way that you're working. And let's, you know, think about how to be more effective without sacrificing your your physical and mental health, because it's it's a big thing. It's a big thing. And I've seen it in my career, which even by, you know, by global standards is fairly short because I'm fairly young. But I've seen a lot of a lot of really bright and talented people uh, uh, hit a speed bump in mm-hmm. in their journey because because of that. And I, yeah, it, it's it's an issue that we don't talk about enough here in the States, I think. But that's changing physical and mental health. And yeah, you guys it, work something- ass off a lot, right? We do. I mean, we and it's something that people are proud of and it's understandable, right? Because is this, we love this work. We love this information. Um, but there's a way to do what we love without sacrificing our health. And, and I think that we should all be looking for that. Awesome. That's a great advice, Peter. Thanks. And, uh, we'll just quickly jump into the quick fire round and then, uh, we'll wrap it up. Awesome. All right. Uh, which book has inspired you the most as an architect? Oh man, that's a tough one. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would probably say, um, Oh boy, that's a uh, crap. I, I'm probably not going to remember the correct title right now. Um, it was a book on critical regionalism. Um, it was generally, I, I'll have to maybe find the specific title for you, but uh, critical regionalism. And um, I, I remember Martin Heidegger, a text of his and right. uh, related to, to hermeneutic uh, philosophy that that really kind of got me more thinking about the context of things rather than, um, you know, thinking of things divorced and idyllic. Nice. I think I'll just Google that and find the name so that uh, people can yeah. like check out the link. All right. Who do you like to work in collaboration with? Maybe some architect or someone you admire? Uh, someone that I have worked with or somebody that I haven't? Haven't in the future. I, I'm sure you already haven't. worked with a lot of people. Oof. Yeah. Um, man, who have I not worked on? You know what? I would love to work with uh, Brian Ringley someday. Um, he's been doing a lot of great robotics research. Uh, he was previously at the WeWork. Boston Dynamics head, right? Yeah. And he's currently at Boston Dynamics. Yeah. Um, and we went to the same university. So oh, I nice. hope that someday, I hope that someday our paths will cross and we'll be able to uh, collaborate on something meaningful because he's absolutely brilliant. Awesome. Uh, I don't know if uh, you would have taken anything else apart from architecture, but what would you have chosen? Uh, if I was to study anything else? Yeah. I would say, I would say either uh, some computer science or business. And I might actually lay, lean towards business because computer science is, is something that I, I firmly believe that, you know, you can teach yourself. 
um, with enough time and dedication, especially with the resources that are out there. Um, but I do think that a business degree would really be very, very helpful to most, if not all people in this profession, and maybe not even a full-fledged degree, but just a basic understanding of business, business models, right. and, and how, how, money, uh, how money and finances impact the work that we do. I think that would be super helpful. Right, right. Okay. Which city is your favorite? I think you've been to Berlin as well, right? Ooh. Yeah, I've been to a lot of cities. Um, Paul, that's a great question. Mm. I would have to say that Amsterdam. Amsterdam is my <laughs> been my favorite city that I've I've done some work at and visited. Um, it's the scale of it. I think is very nice. Everything is very human um, in terms of the scale. You know, contrasted to an American city where everything is kind of at the scale of a vehicle. Um, it, it, it's a city which is very much human, human scale. I think they're very sensitive to the way that they design and build things and the impact that it has in terms of social, um, fabric and, uh, overall, you know, I, I just think it's a great place to be in terms of creativity, um, and, and good collaborators, uh, in terms of creativity and design. So, um, yeah, I think that's, that's, that would be my pick. All right. And uh, what does a daily routine of, uh, in your life look like right from uh, you wake up? Oh, <laughs> oh man, what is it? It's, it looks pretty scary. I got to <laughs> tell you, it's, uh, it's being on the phone uh, a lot, increasingly more so, you know, as our team is growing, um, I try to be available and, and support everybody that I can. Um, you know, it used to be that I spent most of my time doing things and building things. And, and now, again, because we've grown I spend most of my time trying to trying to help people uh, build things and create things that are better and help them develop, obviously, as individuals and professionals. So a lot of my time is spent on calls like that, uh, whether it's, you know, project product management or, you know, creating uh, budgets and agendas. It's it's a lot of different things and, you know, more and more in the administrative side. But um you know, again, if, if it makes a difference in, in terms of uh, a multiplicative addition of value, meaning that I am, you know, multiplying the output of other people uh, rather than just simply adding my output, as long as it's as long as it's that I think we're, we're in the right place. And as long as people are developing in the ways that they are and becoming better and better uh, because of my time and feedback, then, you know, that's that's a day spent well and, and effectively, in my opinion. Awesome. All right, Peter, thanks uh, for coming on to the Akyan podcast. It was a blast having you and uh, I personally learned a ton. What's the best way our listeners could get in touch with you? Uh, yeah, I would say uh, either LinkedIn uh, or Twitter. Um, my handle is M-I-T-E-V-P-I um, on Twitter and pretty much everything else. So feel free to follow me there or connect on LinkedIn and yeah, send a, send a message uh, if you have anything you want to talk about. You've been listening to the Ak Young Podcast. We're still building the community. Please share this knowledge with someone you know who could benefit. Just send them to akyoung.com where you'll find our free newsletter and for more podcast episodes. Search for the show on any major podcasting platform. Don't forget to subscribe where you're listening right now. And if you liked it, leave a rating or review. 